0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I wanted to go back through, as you gathered, I'm doing themes from Ephesians. And I want to talk just about a basic concept. And that is that when we say, Jesus saves, we often say that, and I think we have a kind of vague notion, but I think we can specify very particularly. And one of the doctrines that came to be called recapitulation, it's taken from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, but let me read verse 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up, and the summing up here can also be in Latin, it's actually the recapitulation of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The way that one of the early church fathers, we're talking about the second century, uh, Irenaeus describes this verse, the word recapitulation. All of humanity was created good, but then sin entered in, and all creation then, it was tainted, and all creation is being recapitulated. It's being summed up, it's being restored under the headship of Christ. All are led from infancy to a state of maturity. All people and all of creation. And so the Greek word here, literally, to recapitulate, let me give you another word, and this just seems, I'm just compounding confusion on confusion here, but I'll explain it. And that is that there's actually a psychoanalytic term It's called Traversing the Fantasy. And the idea in this is recapitulation. You know, when you go to the psychotherapist and what he's going to do for you, he's going to try to say, well, this is the way you see your life. This is the way you're summing it up. But we need to sum it up differently. We need to recapitulate it. We need to tell this story in a different way. And so, in the recapitulation view of the atonement, Christ is seen, you know, the new Adam. This is the way Paul will talk in Romans 5. This new Adam is going to succeed where the old Adam failed. And Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did. And I think we need to look at that in big picture, but also individually. This is the picture in Hebrews. This is why he became human. He leads humankind to eternal life. And eternal life here is certainly, it has that future element, but it's also present tense, right? That we're being led, we're beginning to participate, individually and corporately, in this new kind of life. And so we have a diagnosis here that people are sick, and they need a cure. This is Christianity, but it's also psychology. And we live according to a kind of lie, a fantasy about ourselves, a fundamental mistake about who we are and about the world. And so we have to expose this and re-establish who we are. And this traversing or this recapitulation in which the fantasy formation, I think it's just basic to our identity, we get it wrong. And so that fantasy is what obscures it, covers over. There is an inherent antagonism. There's a contradiction individually and in, and corporately. You know, if you think of the original fantasy, the original lie in Genesis, oh, you won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. And so the fantasy of being like gods covers over the alienation. You know, they experience alienation from one another and from God and within themselves, they experience shame. And I think we all feel this. And of course, that's what we do. We're trying to handle the contradictions in our life. We're trying to handle the inherent antagonisms. As Paul describes it, There's the law of my mind, and there's the law of my body, and these two laws are pitted against each other, and I'm being torn apart. Maybe we could reduce it even further. They're at the most basic level. You know, Paul's saying, well, we have bodies, and we have minds, and these two realms, they don't necessarily fit together. And this is the biblical point about we can get this wrong. We can... Do the law of the mind wrong. We can make the symbolic order of language. You know, this is the original deception. You'll know good and evil. You'll create your own kind of human reality. And so we fictionalize, we displace the physical reality with a symbolic representation, which means that the physical body and its mortal condition are only realized as a gap. We all know at some level, at a conscious level, well, death is a problem. But I think subconsciously we feel that as simply an absence, a negation, a disturbance. And so this is the basic backdrop. i have just given you the prognosis of the human condition. The Christian prognosis, but also the psychological. This is where mental problems, such as neurosis, narcissism, psychosis, delusions, personal pathologies. I believe they all arise from this fundamental fantasy in which antagonism is covered over. Now we feel this within ourselves, but we feel the same force, you know, it's the thing we feel corporately as one race or one class is pitted against another in a culture. And so the the fantasy of personal identity covers over our own personal contradictions, but the fantasy which holds a culture together, it is kind of a mass delusion in which we hide the inherent contradictions in a culture. And so every culture, every individual, I think, is structured around some fantasy covering the points of contradiction. And this fantasy, you know, is that, well, things would run smoothly. I would be okay. I would be healthy. Or our country would be a great place if only we could get rid of dot, dot, dot. If only there weren't this obstacle. If only there weren't this problem. And so we have this fantasy And when it fails, I think what is revealed is that actually the thing that we thought was disrupting us, we thought that was denying us our pleasure, the thing that is an obstacle, it actually turns out to be the thing that we structure our whole life around. You'll think of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brother's whole life, they said, Joseph is our obstacle to our father. We need to get rid of Joseph. He's our problem. Think of Cain and Abel. Cain says, well, you know, my problem in life is not me. My problem in life is Abel. I need to get rid of him. And you just go through the history of murder, the history of jealousy. We focus on the obstacle, imagining our whole life gets structured around this thing. And what we don't notice is that, think of the Nazis. They needed anti-Semitism. They said, if we could just get rid of those Jews... It's the Jews. You know, they're hoarding the wealth. They're conspiring against our Aryan race. They're causing things not to run smoothly. What's being covered over is the kind of class antagonism, the the inherent contradiction. And, of course, you need anti-Semitism to have Nazis. There are no Nazis apart from anti-Semitism. Cain needs Abel in this understanding. Joseph's brothers are focused on Joseph as the obstacle. And in the same way, you know, white racists in America, they project their problems onto the black people or the foreign people. There's our problem, right? There's the disturbance. If we could just get rid of this foreign element, then things would run smoothly. You know, it could be the Jews, it could be black people, it could be immigrants. But they're disrupting the harmony. And of course the harmony is the fantasy. It creates the lure, the obstacle creates the lure. And so every sickness, every ideology, every human understanding has this kind of fantasy in which we act, we believe in, and of course we really don't understand our own belief. We all know the president. I'm not talking about any particular president, just any president gets elected because he has moneyed interests. He's the tool of multinational corporate interests. But we believe in the U.S. that the fantasy of the will of the people enables us to act as if the president actually serves on our behalf. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just illustrating the point here. Barack Obama, he said, change. Oh, that sounds good, but what is that? Well, I, I, I don't know, but it sounds good. And we can all gather together under that idea. Or Donald Trump, make America great again. Oh, okay, I, I, you know, America, it used to be when all children were good and there was no racism, there was no class, and all people were equal. It was like Eden. In other words, it's a fantasy. On television, it's just we're inundated with fantasies. Coke is it. Oh, it is? I was looking for it. And Coke is it. I don't quite know what that means, but I'm going to drink Coke and I'm going to get it. (laughs) Whatever that is. Stalinist Russia, you know, the party. The will of the party. Or in theocracy, God can play that role. Or freedom in democracy. They're all kind of... Signifier, but they really don't signify much at all. No one really knows what these fantasy objects are. We can't really get a hold of them. You know, the will of the people. We can do this with Christianity. Our whole Christian life can be structured around the obstacles that we create. You know, it's those liberals, right? It's those atheists. They're our problem. If we could just get rid of the people who don't believe. Or, you know, if you take the idea of biblical inerrancy, you go and you study, and of course the whole point of the study becomes, well, the Bible is inerrant. And we're consumed with proving there's no errors in it. This is, think of the word inerrant. No errors. It's a negation. It's not saying anything positive. It's just saying what's not there. And the liberals then, they're taking that away from us. And so the liberals remind us, oh, you don't have certainty. You keep pursuing certainty and they keep denying us the certainty. And so there's this kind of claim. It's a a very unchristian claim, by the way, that we own the truth or that we have complete, absolute truth available to us. Only God has truth in that way. And, of course, the knowledge of God. We know, we know that you only come to true knowledge through humility. And the danger, of course, is there's this false pride and the excessive claim inherent in the inerrant Bible. I believe we can do it with anything. In other words, you can do it with religion, you can do it with personal identity, in which some fantasy object that we can't quite reach... We can never get a hold of, but if we keep doing our biblical studies or we keep the uh, foreigners out, or in, in some way we'll obtain the object. And there's an inherent contradiction. I hope you see the contradiction. That is, the whole thing is a fantasy. It's built upon a contradiction in which the one thing is defined over and against the other thing. That is, having this inherent Bible, owning the truth. There is a kind of pleasure there. There is a kind of power there. Oh, I own it. Sorry, you don't own it. You don't have it. I've got it. You don't have it. Coke is it. I drink Coke. The Bible is it. I own the Bible. I believe in it. As Paul describes it in regard to the law, there's always a split in the law in which the law would repress or forbid pleasure. I did not know what it was to covet apart from the command that said, thou shalt not covet. You know, the word covet there just means the word desire. I did not know what it was to desire, apart from the command against this kind of transgressive desire. And in Paul's description, the prohibition that brings about the desire, you know, I should have known about coveting. You shall not covet. And he said, then I begin to covet. That's the perversity. That's the fantasy. I think this fantasy is there for many Christians. In other words, I'm naming something. I'm saying, here's our problem. We need to recapitulate. We need to traverse the fantasy. We need to name the lie and undo it and redo our identity in Christ. That's Christianity. But I think we've missed the boat many times that the theology of many Christians It follows this logic rather than undoes the logic of the fantasy. You know, Ted Haggard, he was the president of the National Evangelicals Association. And he was focused on preaching against homosexuality. We need to get rid of these homosexuals. We need to get them out of the church. And of course, the whole time he was having a homosexual affair. And that was exposed. But it didn't bother him. Because he came out, you know, Larry King interviewed him. And he said, well, Christianity is a belief system. It's not an ethic, he said. It's not a set of practices. And it not only takes into account sin, but it's marked by the expectation that you will be a sinner. He said this to Larry, you know, Larry, Jesus says, I came for for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. So as soon as I became worldwide unrighteous, I knew Jesus had come for me. The sin confirms the grace. The evil establishes the good. The obstacle becomes primary. With sin informing grace, evil affirming the good, the wrong in some way affirming the right. This reveals what's behind the inerrant Bible. It's about not so much following the truth, but owning the truth, being in control of the truth, possessing the truth, instead of the truth possessing us. I think this can be overlooked as long as people get caught up in what Paul is actually describing is a kind of perverse enjoyment. I desired, and my desired multiplied, and we get caught up in this pursuit of an object That we can never obtain. That's sin, right? You just keep pursuing that which cannot be obtained. And so the thing we're tempted to do is turn from primary reality to this fantasy, this lie. What is the truth? You know, God is the truth. Who is God? God is Trinitarian love, He's communion, He's communication. It's no surprise, then, that what would interrupt our understanding of who God is is an alternative word, an alternative communion or community. The thing we need to understand about this counter-system is that it's a lure. It's alienating. If we could get rid of the Jews, the liberals, the foreigners, the heirs, if we could fill in the gap, cover the antagonism, ah, then we would have harmony. But of course the point is, no, the whole system is built upon the antagonism. And this is in the fall, the knowledge of good and evil is itself an indicator. You know, that's the whole trick, right? That's the satanic trick. You know, there's the tree of life and there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the satanic trick is, well, you see, God's holding out on you. If you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You'll be like God, and you won't need God's tree of life, you know. It's a kind of screen. I don't think there was anything to those trees in particular, other than a fantasy. It was a lie. And the laws itself, you know, the perverse orientation to the law is the same thing. We imagine there's life in the law. This is the Jewish mistake. It points, you know, the law of the knowledge of good and evil. It points to being like God, an excess of life, an abundant life. And there's a kind of pursuit in which Paul says sin takes control. Sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me desire of every kind, coveting of every kind. And so we have this exponential desire. We're in pursuit of the object. The next thing to notice, though, is about this fantasy, is it's harboring something quite traumatic. Right? We've all lost something. Think of Adam and Eve. What did they lose? They lost life. They lost access to God. I believe every ideology, every fantasy, every sin involves a kind of traumatic loss. We've all experienced traumatic loss. There's a lost enjoyment, a lost fullness we imagine. You know, this is Paul's point. Oh, I didn't know I was missing out until the law said, you're missing out. And now I feel like I've lost something. Sin deceived me and I died. I experienced trauma. That's what Paul's saying. And the deception would cover over the trauma. Trauma. In other words, we would lie about the loss that defines us, that structures our pursuit of life. And this alienated subject becomes, you know, it's alienated precisely because of the distance, the separation taken up within the self, the self against the self. I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. And this becomes a kind of sickness. That is the human sickness. Sickness. And all individuals have pathological tendencies. We all structure our identities in the way that we suffer. Some people suffer differently. Some people suffer from overprivileging themselves, right? We all know the narcissist who takes themselves as perfect. No faults, no issues, no problems. I don't even need to ask for forgiveness because I haven't sinned yet. Paul said this, right, about himself. He said, as a Pharisee, I was perfect in regard to the law. I kept the law perfectly. Now, Paul tells us something else about himself. And I was the chief of sinners. In other words, when he was a narcissist, when he was a good Pharisee, when he was a perfect person in his own sight, he says, I was a killer. I was persecuting the church, and therefore I'm the chief of sinners. Or maybe we have a kind of paranoia. Maybe we're filled with fear. Everything is threatening, you know. This is the neurotic person. Maybe they harm their own body. Maybe they're masochistic. But all, I believe, are pitting the physical body over and against the symbolic order. And so fantasy, in its most the lie of sin, in its most basic dimension, it implies the choice of a symbolic world of thought of a fiction over the reality. I think this gets at Eastern focus, you know what is the whole Eastern goal in Buddhism? It is to meditate and stop thinking emptying myself of thought so that I can meld with the one I believe that's a form of the sickness, that's a form of the antagonism or we can go the other way in a kind of fundamentalism and cling to every word, every intonation, has to be preserved in its original essence. That's any kind of fundamentalism. Imagines that the compulsion to repeat a word, a sentence, that there's substance in it. And I believe this is the trauma that Paul and Christ in the New Testament are exposing the lie of the fantasy, the lie of sin, takes up human suffering, alienation as if it's primary. Paul dismisses this trauma, right? We can be caught up in the trauma. Death can define our life. The obstacle, Abel, Joseph, for his brothers, the obstacle can define our life. But of course, behind all of the obstacles, there's one huge obstacle. There's one huge fear. And that is that we would be undone in death. And Paul dismisses the power of death in light of God's love. After chapter 7, we can picture chapter 7 of Romans. Paul's traversing the fantasy. He's recapitulating his life. He's retelling the story. And then he refounds his identity in Christ. And chapter 8 is about this refounded identity. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through the traumas. Will tribulation? Will distress? Will persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? Of course, for most of us, the trauma is the thing. If these things happen to us, that's the primary thing about us. Paul says nothing can separate us. There is no alienation. There is no antagonism. We're no longer joined to the obstacle of death as our primary identity, we're joined to the reality of Christ. And that's really something. We're joined to other people. We're joined to God. We're joined to reality. And so we're death, or something like death, you know, I think in chapter 7, Paul's describing, I do what I don't want to do. And in chapter 8, Christ defeats death. Thank God, Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God, I've been rescued through Christ Jesus. And Paul sees dying and rising with Christ. You know, we've been joined to Christ. He uses a term here; it's actually a, a technical term to talk about being, becoming one with Christ. That we're joined together with other people, the body of Christ, and the subject of death has joined you know that's the the problem that's the human predicament we've joined ourselves to death to the trauma to the obstacle to put it in a real perverse way we enjoy our sickness and we can't stop pursuing the disease we're committed to the sickness and sometimes we can't give up on the sickness but now we've been joined to Christ our Christianity fundamentalism evangelicalism It can sustain the fantasy or it can expose the fantasy. And I think that where it sustains the fantasy, you know, we all, it just talks about, oh, a future heavenly harmony disconnected from earthly ethics. You know, it obscures the antagonism. I think we're witnessing this a doubling down on, oh, it's those black people. They're causing all the trouble. It's Antifa. Oh, no, it's those right-wingers. Oh, it's the left-wingers. And we reinforce the demand for law and order. We could have a smooth-running country. It's the equivalent of Jerry Falwell blaming the pool boy. The pool boy did it. And the evocation of fear, the fear of immigrants. We can have a kind of fetish about our fears. We love our fears sometimes. The fear of open borders, the fear of an uncontrolled black population, the fear of rioters, the fear of violence. It inhibits a confrontation with reality, like any fantasy does. It's a real question, I think, whether our culture can hold together without its fear, without its fear fetishes, without our fantasies that would contain the antagonism. We need our antagonism sometimes. And so if we think of the fantasy, it's a kind of false story, right? We all tell ourselves a false story, and we understand that our story needs correction. And this is the recapitulation. This is traversing the fantasy. This is a quote from Justin Martyr. and I think this is significant. Justin Martyr, we think, was born 100 AD. He was an immediate follower of the followers of Christ. Here's the way Justin Martyr describes salvation. I would not have believed the Lord himself if he had announced any other than he who is our framer, maker, and nourisher. But because the only begotten Son came to us from the one God who both made this world and formed us and contains and administers all things, summing up, his own handiwork, recapitulating, that's what he's saying, recapitulating, his own handiwork in himself. I always think of the words, you know, when Jesus says, take and eat, and the crowd is offended, and Jesus says to the disciples, will you abandon me also? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. I think that's what Justin Martyr is describing. Here is the alternative. I say, he says, I would not have believed, but I know that here is the framer, the one who gives me nourishment. And the problem is we would turn to what is not our nourishment, our proper frame, our proper understanding, to an inadequate identity, an inadequate story. We would turn from the Word of God, and I mean the person of Christ, to a human word if you didn't recognize it, I've just given you a theory of the atonement, but it's a different I think understanding than we're often given. Christ did not die primarily to meet a requirement of the law. Christ came, he lived, he died to displace a deception, a fantasy, which involved the law. We would take the law and make life out of it. So let me close with Irenaeus. He says, He commenced afresh the long line of human beings and furnished us in a brief, comprehensive manner with salvation so that what we had lost in Adam, namely to be according to the image and likeness of God, that we might recover in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.